Okay, we are here for the Word of God. This is for a message for Wednesday, November 29th, actually being recorded on a Wednesday. We're not here to stare at TikTok to the delight of the Chinese Communist Party. We're here to gaze into the perfect law of liberty, the Word of God, and not be distracted from our focus and from doing the will of God. We're not here to grieve the Holy Spirit by letting our eyes gaze on that which is not of his will. We are here to walk in the Spirit and to receive the power of the Spirit to comprehend and understand the Word of God and to apply it in a time in which the days are evil and in which people are distracted as disaster is lurking around the corner in every possible sphere. And so we, redeeming, we are redeeming the time because the days are evil. We are gazing as into a glass, into a mirror, into the perfected law of liberty. The only way to receive liberty is not to cast off moral restraints, but to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and to receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls and then we can hold forth the word of life to others in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's why we're here. So today I'm going to speak from Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, an extraordinarily powerful section of scripture of this heavenly homily, a heaven-sent homily. And I'm calling it the three appearings and the triple hapax, putting together two concepts that we've been developing on Sundays and other days. The three appearings and the triple hapax. And I'm going to read what we have now of a translation from the Greek text that we've developed together. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere replica of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us, not to offer himself many times as typified by the action of the archpriest of the Levitical order who enters into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another. Verse 26, for if that were the case, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But as it is now, once... At the termini of the ages, for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself, he has been manifested. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and with this death, judgment, so also Christ, having been once offered for the assuming of the judgment of the sins of the many, that's all people, will appear. He will become visible, as the Greek puts it, afthesetai, future passive indicative, third person singular form of the verb horao, which is in the title of our now 320 hour series, 320 increments. We see Jesus, horao, that word is used right here as it says that he will be seen a second time. He will appear in order to be seen a second time without sin, as he did the first time without sin, as the sinless one who is made to be sin, of course, to those eagerly awaiting him for salvation. The three appearings of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, are intermingled with a triple hapax, the triple use of the word that means once. Note the triple hapax, once times three, in Hebrews 9, 26, 27, and 28. Hapax, H-A-P-A-X, you'll see it in print, refers to a single occurrence to the exclusion of any other similar occurrence, once and for all, once and never again. That's how the Lunita lexicon puts it, according to the semantic, semantic domains. 
The PT who wrote Hebrews is almost screaming the word once and putting it in direct and irresistible opposition with many times palakas found in Hebrews 9.25a and 26a. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is once for all for all, meaning once and for all, temporally speaking, once, one time and one time only, and for all, meaning for all people from all times and all places. The sacrifices for sin and sins of the Levitical cultus were many and were for some human beings, that's many Israelites, and for some time, a year at most. Jesus Christ, once and for all sacrifice, was once never to be repeated and for all time and for all people of all times. So that's why I call it once and for all and for all. Now, we have the inevitability and imminence of Jesus' second appearance. That's the theme of verse 28. The inevitability and the imminence of Jesus' second appearance. The divinely acceptable offering of Christ once for the assuming of the judgment of the sins of many, that's all, having been completed and was with the word to Telestai, makes it certain and imminent that he will appear a second time with salvation, Hebrews 9.28. This is another way of saying the son of righteousness, S-U-N, speaking of Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness is about to arise with healing, that means salvation, in his wings or his rays of glory. The son of righteousness is about to arise with healing or salvation in his wings or rays. That's Malachi 4.2, the Septuagint version being Malachi 3.20. Just as judgment is imminent upon the death of human beings, so the second appearing of our great archpriest is imminent because of his sacrifice and offering that has been accepted by God the Father. The new covenant community is right to have and hold this imminent expectation. We are right to have this imminent expectation and to share the intense anticipation of the creation for what is known as the apocalypse of the sons of God in Romans 8:19. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who that same Spirit who is to be poured out on all flesh, the Spirit who is to be poured out on all flesh has been poured out on some flesh, and that means that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, anticipating the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh and the salvation of all people. But we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's the New Covenant community in the present evil age, the, we have the first fruits of the Spirit who is to be poured out on all flesh eventually. Romans 8.23, confer with Joel 2.28. We are right, it's right, to have and to hold the imminent expectation of the redemption of our bodies. Again, we're in Romans 8.23 for that. Our bodies are already not our own. They've been bought by God out of the slave market of corruption, as it were. We have been bought with a price. And this will refer us back to Lonergan's thesis number 15 in his masterpiece book called The Redemption, Thesis 15. We may hit that down the road, or as I say, up the road a little bit, because we are following an upward call. We may hit that up the road again, because it's one of the most extraordinary pieces of writing. We are right to expect the redemption of all creation from its slavery to corruption also. The redemption of our bodies is only part of that which is called the redemption of all creation from its slavery to corruption and to share the freedom of the children of God in glorification. Romans 8:21. all creation in all of its times will share the glorious freedom of the children of God in resurrection. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, once again, that's what Paul says in Romans 8.23, 
The first fruits of the Spirit may be compared with the seal and the pledge of the Spirit in Ephesians 1.13 to 14 and Ephesians 4.30. So we have the groaning of the Lord, the Spirit, in us who spurs this expectation on in us. It's the Holy Spirit who causes hope to overflow in us. If we fail to have this imminent expectation, we are grieving the Holy Spirit, whose power is directed to, quote, causing hope to overflow in us. That's the last verse of the exposition passage in Romans, in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 13. That's Paul's climactic statement in Romans as far as his exposition. The Holy Spirit, he prays, will have, cause us to have hope overflow in us. If we fail to appropriate the grace of God that gives us this hope, and to have this hope, the Holy Spirit is groaning in grief over our failure of the grace of God rather than groaning with us in earnest expectation of the imminent, universal, and liberating appearing of Jesus Christ and in persistent intercession with us where he also groans in Romans 8, 26, and 27, making intercession for us during this time in between, during this agona in which we are engaged. To Jesus' disciples who witnessed Jesus' removal from their sight and into heaven, the Godward side of the integral universe, the scripture says that two men in white, I know there's famous movies, popular movies called Men in Black. Well, here we have men in white. I'll take these men in white over the men in black because it says two men in white came and said to them, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back to you in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. That's what the men in white said in Acts 1.11. The thought begun here continues. What this announcement says that he will come again is continued in Acts 3.20 to 21 where Peter at the beautiful gate reports that God, quote, will send the Messiah, Christ, who was elected in advance for you, namely Jesus, who is to remain in heaven until the times of the restoration of all things of which God spoke univocally by the mouth of all his holy prophets from time immemorial. So what are you expecting when you expect Jesus to come again? Are you expecting an apocatastasis, a restoration of all things, or a disappearance of a bunch of people from the earth? Please notice that Jesus is to remain bodily in heaven, the Godward side of the universe, the incomprehensible and inaccessible side of the integral cosmos. He remains there until the times, meaning the simultaneity of times where the restoration of all things occurs. Peter does not say that Jesus will be sent from heaven to cause the disappearance of billions of people, but to effect the restoration of all things. Apocatastasios panton. The Lord Jesus himself referred to this as the regeneration, not the individual regeneration of people, but the regeneration of the universe in Matthew 19, 28. Pollen Genesia, which means literally, again, Genesis. We have and hold this expectation of the imminent coming of Jesus Christ, as many of us had for many years. We have had this imminent expectation as to tell us thy phalanx. And... It is the expectation of Jesus. We've had this, most of us in this phalanx, for decades. But there's a difference. But now we expect him to restore everything, not just rescue a privileged percentage of humanity, 
leaving the rest behind to endure the so-called great tribulation, something that Jesus prophesied would happen in the generation that heard him, not in our future, although there will certainly be conditions like those conditions that went up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and staring at TikTok videos until the destruction comes, right up until the time when a city blows up, when riots happen throughout the streets, when America or countries in Europe lose their status as free nations. People will be just doing what they always do in the frantic search for happiness and acceptance and prestige when the sewage hits the impeller, as Colonel Jeff Cooper used to say. Some people may say, and this is the objection, but Hebrews says in 9.28 that Christ will appear and be seen by those who are eagerly waiting for him. That seems exclusive, you may say. But to, a, to that objection, I reply, true, he is coming for those who are waiting him for him. But as the scripture also says, the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Why sons, plural? Because when Christ appears, you Sons of God will also appear with him in glory. All creation is waiting for that. And so in Romans 8, 19, there isn't going to be a rapture and a disappearance of a bunch of people so that your UPS driver drops his phone on the way after leaving a package on your porch. And people disappear from churches and leave a lot more because they're not believers. It's not going to be like the commercial of a new book on 31 ways to prepare for the so-called rapture. That rapture doctrine has been tried and found wanting. It came from a vision held by a little girl in a revival in 1820 that was overheard by J.N. Darby, who took it to D.L. Moody, and Moody took it to America, and America adopted it, and Dallas Theological Seminary adopted it, and L.S. Chafer and C.I. Schofield adopted that doctrine, and it is a false doctrine. It has been popularized by literature like the Left Behind series. It is a false doctrine. And I think it's about time to give it three warnings and then call it a heresy and boot it out of the church. Our expectation is yes for the imminent appearing of Jesus Christ, but he's not coming to snatch a few people out of this world and then pound the rest of the world. He's coming to restore all things in a time of refreshment and a time of universal restoration, which is the impact of his universal act of obedience that to the extent of the death on the cross. If the church doesn't get this right, the church is going to be found wanting, not only in history, but at the evaluation. Now, I want to look because I like to hit from the exegesis from every single angle. I like to have a little bit of exegesis, Greek word exegesis, thrown in almost all the time. It's important. In fact, it's essential or you're not going to get the message of the word of God. There's no way you're going to understand the Bible. And I hear people on TV or I hear people on the radio who are very good pundits speaking about certain things. And yet when they try to go through to become theologians, they drop the ball in a major way, telling people that in, in order to be saved, they've got to believe and they've got to repent and they've got to receive the gift of tongues. That's blasphemy and it's stupidity, and it's heresy. Stick to political commentary. Don't try to be a theologian if you're just a dilettante in the scriptures. Don't pretend, even though people will call you up and flatter you and say that you'd be a wonderful pastor. You would be a lousy pastor. Don't even do it. Don't even think about it. Don't go there. Study and read before you begin to make pronouncements that you think are from the scripture. 
and you don't know anything at all about Christianity or the Bible or Jesus Christ or his work on the cross or what it means to be saved or how to be saved and that Jesus Christ's obedience is what saves everybody, not your personal faith. So wise up. If you're not a theologian, then stop trying to be one on the airwaves. If you're a political commentator, stick with it. If you know the gospel, then preach it if you want to, by all means. But don't try to be, pretend that you're a pastor or a theologian. If you're gifted to be a pastor, then what the hell are you doing on the radio commenting on politics? All right, just thought I'd say that. Anyways, prospero and anafero, two, th two words in the Greek. Hebrews 9.28a uses two verbs, prospero and anafero. You'll see them in our printed printout. Prospero, P-R-O-S-P-H-E-R, omega O, means, according to Gingrich and Danker, to bring or to offer or present. Thayer notes that the passive voice of prospero here points to the fact that what he suffered, what Jesus suffered, was according to God's will. And that's a very good point to make. Joseph Thayer's lexicon is usually pretty right on. He says again, the passive voice in prospero, and that's very important that we recognize it because it refers to a being offered rather than an offering of oneself at part participating in the action. Thayer notes again, the passive voice of prospero points to, quote, the fact that what he, Jesus, suffered was due to God's will. I say then that because this offering of Jesus was according to God's will, then it had to be an act of obedience on Jesus' part. It was that which Paul in Philippians 2.8 referred to as Jesus Christ's radical and representative obedience to the extent of the death of the cross. I said radical and representative obedience. Because when one died, all died. And when one, the dead, one who died was raised and justified, all were raised and justified. The singular radical representative act of obedience by Jesus Christ, according to the will of God and to the will of God, is precisely that which led to the making righteous of the many. Romans 5.12b and 12.19 and Romans 5.18, and 1 Timothy 2.6. It is the making of the many to be constituted as righteous who were once constituted as sinners and formerly described as being under sin. Romans 3.9. In both Hebrews 9.28, and this is includes a quotation of a phrase from Isaiah 53.12, and in Romans 5.19, we have that word many. We've seen time and time again that the many in question refers to none other than all of humanity of all times and places. In Hebrews 9.25, the writer uses the active voice, speaking of Jesus offering himself so it's prosphere auton, prosphere auton. And that means that he participated in the action of offering himself. So he was offered, that is, by God the Father. But he also offered himself. There is an oscillation or an alternation here and elsewhere in the scriptures of the notions of Jesus being offered and Jesus offering himself. Being offered, we would call that his passion or his passive being offered. And offering himself, that's his action. Both his passion and his action resulted in the eternal universal salvation. In both notions, Jesus' passion and his action at the cross, Jesus' obedience is highlighted. That is, his willing obedience to God the Father's all-saving will. In 1 Timothy 2.4, the obedience of Jesus, a prime issue dealt with in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, as we've seen, 
is to be significantly dealt with again, and we're on the cusp of doing that in Hebrews 10, especially in verses 5 through 10, especially in verse 10, where God's will is specifically highlighted and connected to Jesus Christ's obedience. The alternation or the back-and-forth motion between the passive and the active notions on the part of Jesus is further dramatized with the word anaphero, A-N-A-P-H-E-R-O, here in 928a, the first part of verse 928. The passive voice of prospero, prospero, on one side of the scale is balanced by the active voice deployed with anaphero, and therefore on the other side of the balance scale. On one side of the scale, prospero, passive, he was offered. On the other side of the scale, anaphero, he offered himself. And so both of these things are very important in understanding what Jesus Christ did on the cross, as we put it that way. Anaphere, in some contexts, can mean to offer up. The word ana, the prefix ana, meaning to meaning up or again. And so in com- some contexts, anaphero can mean to offer up. In Hebrews 7.27, it means specifically, in fact, to offer up as a sacrifice. Here in Hebrews 9.28, however, the verb means specifically to bear, B-E-A-R in the sense of carry or bear a burden, or to assume, or even to incur, or to lay oneself open to something. The way it's used in Isaiah 53.12 and Hebrews 9.28, which quotes Isaiah 53.12 in part, and therefore, the phrase from Isaiah 53.12 is literally installed into Hebrews 9.28, which says, to bear the sins of many has the meaning of Christ taking them onto himself, taking all the sins of the world up onto himself as a burden to be borne. And therefore, he does so to make propitiation for sins or to make satisfaction for the reconciliation of the world to God. It has both the sense of to bear and to take away. Jesus bore our sin and the sins of all of us to take them away. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, at this point, I want to take a slight aside or digression because there's something I want to pick up here as a theme as it has been averred, or I don't remember exactly where I read it. That's not important, but it's been claimed that the author of Hebrews does not employ, quote, apocalyptic language, close quote, as Paul does. And by that is meant that the writer does not identify such entities as sin, death, and the flesh, or Hades also, and death, as suprahuman enemies of God and of human beings, especially Christians. Paul does indeed speak apocalyptically when he personifies death, calling it, quote, the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. He personifies sin as a person who can pay wages in Romans 6, 23. And he personifies the flesh as a personified superpower that lusts against the spirit in Galatians 5, 17 and cannot be defeated by our human weak flesh but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the way that the writer of Hebrews speaks of death as that over which the devil has power suggests also an apocalyptic viewpoint. There's a suggestion, at least, of an apocalyptic viewpoint. Moreover, it is possible to view apocalyptically the word sin in Hebrews 9.26, the sin that was put away by the sacrifice the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 9.26, that the devil in Hebrews Hebrews 2.14 had the power of death 
squares with the apocalyptically held personification of apocalyptic enemies in the book of Revelation, of death and Hades, both of whom are portrayed as being thrown into the lake of fire, death and Hades riding the same horse in the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're called. Revelation 20, verse 14. Paul and John are not the first authors of scripture to personify death. Isaiah did it in Isaiah 28, 18, speaking of those who, quote, made a covenant with death, which the prophet announces will be annulled. Their covenant that they made with death, a personification, will be annulled. He also spoke of a contract with Sheol, which again, God through Isaiah announced, will not stand, Isaiah 28, 18. And Paul famously echoed the word of the Lord through Hosea in 13, 14, in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. God through Hosea said, O death, where is your penalty? O Hades, where is your goad? That means your pointed stick that you stab people with. It's also interpreted as a sting or a stinger, as in a hornet. Paul essentially reproduces this trash talk against death, personified, in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, saying, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O Hades, is your victory? So the use of words like sin and death in Hebrews may diverge from its obvious personification by Hosea, Paul, and John, but it does not in any way rule the homilist out of an apocalyptic understanding. In any case, I'm not dissuaded from calling Hebrews 9, 24 to 28 the apocalypse of the three appearings of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse of the three appearings of Jesus Christ. For these three appearings are in every way revelatory, and that's what apocalyptic is all about, and biblical, and that's what true apocalypses are all about. Most of all, this passage that we're dealing with right now in Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, is a revelation of Jesus Christ within Hebrews in toto, which in its totality is a heavenly homily, which is an even larger Christological treatise. In Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, as in the homily as a whole, Jesus appears so that we can see him with very real eyes, the eyes of our heart. Ephesians 1.17, Hebrews 2.8 and 9, and 12.2. Now let's consider the PT, and I call him the pastor teacher because he was one who wrote Hebrews, and Isaiah. To take away by bearing the penalty of the burden of sins in Hebrews 9.28 is similar to the sense in Hebrews 9.26a. Christ appeared in order to put away sin, singular, by the sacrifice of himself. So let me say that again. To take away by bearing the penalty or burden of sins is similar to the sense in Hebrews 9.26a. Christ appeared in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Most Tellingly, though, it means to bear the judgment for the sins of many. It means to bear the judgment for the sins of many. Many meaning all of humanity, of course. Now, I know that scares the hell out of certain people that are afraid of that word penal substitution something to be avoided like the plague. Thayer's lexicon is helpful in giving Anna Farrow the strikingly pictographic meaning of, quote, to lift up on oneself or to take upon oneself. Joseph Thayer even then adds to take upon himself the sins of many in Hebrews 9.28, and then he also refers or says to confer with Isaiah 53, 12, means by metonymy, that's a figure of speech by which one word is given for another, by metonymy, their punishment, their punishment, 
their punishment. Moreover, he cites Weiner's Grammar, W-I-N-E-R, and that's still a book that you can get through Wythe and Stock, I believe. Weiner's Grammar, who gives it this amplified meaning, to bear sins up on the cross, namely in order to expiate them by suffering death. This gives a splendid understanding to the word. Weiner's grammar, by the way, of the Greek New Testament was an excellent work because what he did was intentionally reveal the Greek text over and against the corrupted Hebrew text in their interpretation of the Greek language. And so I think, and I haven't read Weiner's grammar, but I hope to get it, I think he is like the Hebrews writer relying upon the Greek meaning of words such as we find in the Septuagint. And so I'm going to say again what Weiner's grammar says, quoted by Thayer, to bear sins up on the cross, namely in order to expiate them by suffering death. Remember we talked about the place of expiation, the mercy seat. This is the meaning it has in Isaiah 53, 12. And here is the new English translation of the Septuagint, a very excellent translation, which we will give for the copyright information at the bottom of this printout. Isaiah 53, 12, it says, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus Christ, shall inherit many. The note C on the bottom of page 866 of the NETS is very helpful. This word, he shall inherit many, can also be interpreted as he shall cause many to inherit. And this would, of course, fit with Hebrews 9.15. So let me read again the Greek text, the translation of the Greek text of the Septuagint of Isaiah 53.12, which is partly installed right into Hebrews 9.28, therefore its importance. Therefore, he shall inherit many, and I would actually better say, he shall cause many to inherit. That's the eternal inheritance of eternal life. And he shall divide the spoils of the strong, because his soul was given over to death, and he was reckoned among the lawless, and he bore the sins of many. And because of their sins, he was given over. There's the passive and the active. He bore the sins of many, and because of their sins, he was given over. And so the suffering of God and the man Jesus occurred on the cross. The suffering of God and the man Jesus. Notice that I have alternated back and forth between the appearings here. I've spoken already of the appearing that is coming, the second appearance of our great archpriest, but now I'm oscillating back to the most important doctrine of the death of Jesus Christ to secure eternal redemption. Jesus was passively offered to be the sin offering for many, meaning all, but he actively took upon himself the sins of the many bearing their judgment in himself. We could liken that by a somewhat crude analogy of him hugging a grenade or falling upon a grenade to save his compatriots. Jesus Christ, the Son, and God the Father are one, one, John 10, 29, and 30, not only in essence, but in the action and passion of the cross. They are of one will when it comes to the salvation of the world. The Father and the Son are one in love. The Holy Spirit whom we have from the Father and the Son pours that very love out in our hearts in Romans 5.5. 5. God is love, 1 John 4.18, 4.16 make that. God is love pertains to God as one divine being, and to God as three eternal persons, three uncreated acting subjects who love, whose essence and act is love, whose love holds all of humanity, quote, 
tucked safely in the place where the Lord our God protects the living. Just as he flings away our enemies, sin, the flesh, death, and Hades, like stones from a sling. That's an adapted quote of Abigail's blessing to David, adapted as it should be to USSJC. In Jesus' suffering and death, according to Helmut Goldwitzer. Now, I don't often quote people who interpret Barth. I'd rather go right to the source. I'd rather go right to Barth, and I'm doing that in my study. Hopefully, many, many hours each week I, I devote to studying Karl Barth, who is slighted by people who are inferior to him theologically and intellectually and who attack him constantly, but he's the one. And I, I agree with Doug Campbell from Duke University that Barth, above any other theologian, at least that I've read, is a worthy recipient of the mantle from Paul the Apostle. Not that he is inspired as Paul was, not that he's an apostle as Paul was, but he fans out the Pauline dogmatics as well as the biblical and church dogmatics better than anyone I've ever even been exposed to as a theologian. And so I don't usually quote people who interpret Barth, but there's an exception here. His name is Helmut Goldwitzer, and you'll see his book in print also. It's in fact called Church Dogmatics. He comments on various key portions of Church Dogmatics by Barth, and it's probably a good place to start for people that want to understand Karl Barth. And this is what he said. I want to include these two quotations because I consider them exquisite. When I mark up my books that I read, making them almost illegible to the next generation, I usually write exquisite only when there's a paragraph or a quotation that is exceptionally extraordinary and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ in an extraordinary manner. And here's two of them from Goldwitzer interpreting or at least commenting on Barth. In fact, he's commenting on a section I've been reading lately and just finished in CD, Church Dogmatics, Volume 3, Point 2, page 148 and following. He's commenting on that section of Barth and he writes this. We are not dealing merely with any suffering, but with the suffering of God and this man, speaking of Jesus, in the face of the destruction which threatens all creation and every individual thus compromising God as creator. We are dealing with the promising God as the creator. We are dealing with, quote, the painful confrontation of God and this man, meaning Jesus, not merely with any evil, but mere, not merely with death, but with eternal death with the power of that which is not. Let me read it again quickly. This is all from Goldwitzer interpreting Barth, and from what I've read of Barth, it properly interprets it. He says, we are speaking of Jesus Christ's death on the cross specifically, his giving of himself on the cross, 926 of Hebrews, 928, bearing the sins of many, and the Father giving the Son, but the Father being in Christ on the cross, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, he says this, We are not dealing merely with any suffering, but with the suffering of God and this man, Jesus. In the face of, and I added the word Jesus because that's what he means, so I'll say it again. We are not dealing merely with any suffering, but with the suffering of God and this man. In the face of the destruction which threatens all creation and every individual, thus compromising God as creator. We are dealing with the promising God as the creator. We are dealing with the painful confrontation of God and this man, not merely with any evil, not merely with death, but with eternal death, with the power of that which is not. So if you want to compare the sufferings of other people, and you say, well, they've suffered more than Jesus did on the cross, you are missing the whole point. One, you're missing that God is Jesus and Jesus is God. 
Two, you're missing that the suffering that he endured is not endured by any other human being, nor could it be, because it was with a confrontation with eternal death and damnation and his experience of it for everyone. Don't ever try, don't do it to me anyways, and try to compare the suffering of other people and the the mangling of other people and say that's greater than what Jesus experienced. You have no, this is said all the time when people want to make a point, you have no idea and it's overused, but I'm going to say it and I'm going to use it with emphasis. You have no idea. And between no and idea, you can put any number of popular adjectives. You have no idea. We're not dealing with painful suffering of any kind. We're dealing with the painful confrontation of God in this man, not merely with any evil, but merely, not merely even with death, but with eternal death. Now, we're dealing here with hamartiology. I told you at the very beginning, in fact, all the way back with doing and living theology, that we would be doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews. And we're not dealing here alone with homardiology. We are. Homardiology is the theological study of sin. And soteriology, which is the theological study of salvation. And we're dealing with both of these in this passage, sin and salvation. But we're dealing especially always with Christology. Only by seeing homardiology and soteriology in the light of Christology can we make any sense of homardiology or sin or salvation. Only by seeing homardiology and soteriology in the light of Christology, the study of Christ, can we make sense of universal salvation. For universal salvation is none other than the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. It is the universal impact of the cross of Christ, which Jesus endured, and nobody else endured that death, the death of the cross in which he experienced eternal death, or the death that he's speaking of here in Goldwitzer, eternal death, which he experienced for every man, for everyone. And so the universal impact of the cross, which Jesus endured in Hebrews 12, 2, to put away sin per se, sin itself, by the sacrifice of himself, the sacrifice of perfect love. Helmut Goldwitzer, on page 120 of that same book, which I will note in the footnotes, Continuing the above thought, he wrote this. I, I was tempted to quote the page, pages of his because they're so exquisitely put and summarized. But he says this, and I'm near ending now. Therefore, we are not dealing with any sin or with many sins which might wound God again and again. And not only especially at this point, and the consequences of which this man had to suffer in part and freely willed to do so. We are dealing with sin itself. That's what I call sin per se and as such. The preoccupation, the orientation, the determination of man as he has left his place as a creature and broken his covenant with God. The corruption which God has made his own. The corruption which God has made his own. For which he willed to take responsibility in this one man. That's Jesus. Here in the passion in which as judge he lets himself be judged. God has fulfilled this responsibility. In the place of all men, he has himself wrestled with that which separates them from him. He has himself borne the consequences of this separation to bear it away. We can't even begin to appreciate the unspeakable gift of God in Jesus Christ. 
the unspeakable horror of the cross, the unspeakable death tasted by Jesus Christ for everyone. We have no blankety-blank idea of what the wages of sin are, the death of the cross. It is my view that when Paul quoted the hymn that he makes the centerpiece of Philippians, that when he talked about he was obedient even to death in that, Paul added his own tag there right in the heart of that hymn in Hebrews and Philippians 2, 6 through 11. He added the death of the cross because he didn't want the church to think that Jesus' death was like other people's death and that the cross was just like other people's crucifixion and that his suffering was comparable to other people's suffering. He wanted to talk about the death of the cross in which God and this man Jesus as one confronted the eternal death, laid himself open to the judgment for sin and for all sins of all human beings for all time. Not only laid himself open to that judgment, but endured that judgment. So I couldn't resist quoting these two passages because they articulate in an extraordinarily clear and potent way what I have been laboring with all my might and with the power that God pours forth in me to say. I'll say that again. They articulate in an extraordinarily clear and potent way what I am laboring with all my might and with the power that God pours forth in me to say to the glory of our Lord and Savior for his majestic self-giving, his majestic self-giving love and to the glory of God our Father and thanksgiving for his unspeakable gift. And Father, I thank you for this wonderful privilege of communicating your word with boldness and power. I'm not a bold person, but I thank you, Father, that you've given me boldness in this one important thing, to proclaim your son, Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of a mystery, this mystery of his universally saving significance. May we view as much as you let us view into through the darkness of the cross and see the light that shines in darkness. And may we see with the eyes of our heart more and more the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of our crucified, risen, exalted, and crowned Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I ask this in his name. Amen.